Well, we're winding this up, and um, hopefully if it's raised some questions in your mind, you won't be afraid to ask because there are no bad questions, all right? And this is a journey we're taking together. And so when we have those times of doubts, let's pull together, see if we can't find answers. I suspect you have seen this word coexist either on a bumper sticker or a t-shirt, and it's spelled out with religious symbols. Um, I've always wondered, every time I see it on a bumper sticker, what is that driver trying to communicate? If it is to communicate the need for all people to cooperate in life, despite our differences, to make this world a better place, I'm good with that. You know, I don't have to necessarily agree with somebody to work shoulder to shoulder next to him to make our community better, to make our world better. Uh, We're all human beings created in the image of God. So regardless of our color, our language, our cultural background, we ought to be able to work together despite our differences. After all, it was the Apostle Paul writing in Romans that said, If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. And then Paul writing to young Timothy said this, And the Lord's servant must not quarrel. Instead, he must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. Those who oppose him, he must gently instruct. So if the idea is for us to cooperate with one another, I I can give that a total thumbs up because we ought to. How else are we ever going to be Christ to this world unless we get along with others? If, however, the driver of that car once coexist to mean compromise, my response is, is, is different. To compromise in the tenets of faith or mission is to misunderstand the truth claims of all religious backgrounds depicted in that sticker. If the driver is trying to suggest that there are really no differences, that we're all the same, that we're all equally true, then I find that sticker to be offensive. You see, this whole question of how that sticker is to be interpreted brings to mind the issue of tolerance, considered by many today to be the only cultural absolute. That's a great word. It's an, and it's an original concept. It's a valuable building block for any culture or society. Now, I grew up with this understanding of tolerance. Tolerance recognizes and respects others without necessarily agreeing with them. That's it. Tolerance recognizes and respects others without necessarily agreeing with them. A secondary use of that term might be this, showing restraint in the face of zealous disagreement. The late Jerry Clower tells the story of being in a football game where his son was the field goal kicker for the high school football team and was sent in at a very crucial time in the game to kick a field goal, which he missed way wide of the of the goalposts and that's all it took about four rows in front of him a fan just went ballistic who's that field goal kicker he couldn't hit the broad side of a barn with a football and on and on he went relentlessly uh, now Clower was a rather imposing man physically speaking he had all he could take and so he weaved his way down through the crowd sat right next down to the man looked at him and said you need to thank Jesus that you're still alive The guy responded, what do you mean? Clower answered, he said, that's my son you're ridiculing, and the only reason you're not dead right now is because I'm a Christian and Jesus won't let me kill you. (laughs) That's a form of tolerance, okay? 
Maybe a bit extreme, but tolerance nonetheless. However, today, the idea of respect in the midst of disagreement is called negative tolerance. Positive tolerance, on the other hand, means to consider every individual's beliefs, value system, lifestyle, and truth claims as all equally valid. Positive tolerance goes beyond respecting a person's rights to demanding an endorsement of that person's beliefs, values, and truth claims as being equal to yours or to anybody else's. Now, folks, we've got an etymological problem here. You see, the word tolerance, by its very nature, implies disagreement. Tolerance is unnecessary when you agree with somebody. I don't tolerate people who are on the same side as I am in an issue. Do you? No, we're in agreement. So here's the problem. The essential element of tolerance, disagreement, is completely lost and ignored in today's application of the principle. If you think somebody is wrong, you're being intolerant. But here's the catch-22. One must disagree to exercise tolerance, and yet to do so brings the accusation of being intolerant. It's, it's, it's confusing. And have you noticed that the people who cry most about tolerance are the most intolerant people you've ever come across? Now, here's another distinction that needs to be made. Respect and tolerance for the person is not the same as respect for one's ideas or truth claims. Tolerance requires that every person's views get a courteous hearing. That's the way it works. Everybody has the right to speak and to be heard and to be heard graciously. We've lost that in our culture too. But not all views, not all truth claims have equal worth or merit. And that's the sticking point. Many in our culture today view all religious beliefs as equally true. And if one proclaims a superior religious view, why? That just simply cannot be tolerated. But such a perspective is not only problematic for the Christian, it is problematic for other religions as well. And here's why. Not every truth claim can be equally true because they are contradictory. They could all be wrong, yeah, but they can't all be right. When, one, when two things are contradictory, one has to be wrong. The new concept of tolerance undermines truth. And truth is what is real, what is right. Truth is what actually exists. Truth doesn't change with our beliefs. Instead, our beliefs should change in light of the truth. Some claim that there just is no absolute truth today, period. If that's the case, why do we have instant replay in the NFL? <laughs> you see, the Bible even urges us, encourages us to be lovers of truth. So the answer is not to pretend that everybody is right. The answer is to love, seek, and embrace real truth. But here's the rub. Here's the rub. Jesus claimed to be the truth. In John chapter 14, verse 6, in the upper room before the cross, Jesus answers a question that Thomas actually asks. And the answer is simply this. 
I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, there are many in our culture and world who are turned off by those words. They, they say those are arrogant words. Those are narrow-minded words. Those are bigoted words. And some of you here this morning might even be wrestling with these words of Jesus and finding them difficult, uh, a, a barrier, an obstacle to your faith journey. Well, one thing is for certain. It is a dividing line for many. Because it strikes at the very core of our faith. You cannot ignore these words of Jesus. They separate him from anything else. And they also help to answer the, these myths that grow up around religions uh, across the world. We're going to take a look at some of those myths. And we're going to see if we can answer this question to a certain degree. Now again, let me remind you. In a message on a Sunday morning, I can't grapple with the depths of this. I, but I, I hope, I hope what you will hear, first of all, is my heart. And I hope then you will hear the words that will hopefully help you dig deeper so that you can answer it for yourself. I can answer it for me. I, I just can't answer it for anybody else. But I can point you in some directions that I hope will at least help you in your spiritual search. So here's the first myth it really is a myth. All religions are basically the same. People often say that if you strip the religions down to their essentials, they are basically teaching the same thing. That all spiritual paths lead to the same mountain and to the same God. Now true, there are some points of agreement among world religions. For example, Islam and Christianity are both monotheistic. That means we believe in only one God. Most all religions also contend that this physical world is not the only reality, that there is something beyond this world, that there is an afterlife. But when Jesus asserts that he is the way, the truth, and the life, that he's the only path to God, he boldly puts Christianity in a class all by itself. If the path to God is not through Jesus alone, then Christianity cannot be reconciled with any other religion. The uniqueness of Christianity is rooted in the uniqueness of Jesus himself. Someone once noted that other religions promised to show you how to find the truth. Jesus said, I am the truth. Other religions promised to show you the way to salvation, but Jesus says, I am the way to eternal life. Other religions promised to show you how to become enlightened. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Do you see the distinction? Now think of it like this. All the other major religions are based on people doing something. Through struggling and striving to earn God's favor. Other religions insist on going on pilgrimages or giving a certain amount of alms to the poor or avoiding certain foods or praying in specified ways or spiritually evolving through a series of reincarnations. All of this is a human attempt to reach out to God. The, the world religious environment is humanity desperately reaching to God to try and grab his attention to appease him so he doesn't crush us. Jesus taught just the opposite. Jesus said in him, God is reaching out to us. 
God took the initiative to live as we live, to face the struggles and the temptations that we face, and ultimately pay the price that we could not pay for our salvation. I like the way the book, uh, Becoming a Contagious Christian, by Bill Hybels and Mark Middleberg, who spoke last week, puts it. Other religions are spelled D-O, because they teach that people have to do a bunch of religious rituals to try and please God. However, Christianity is spelled D-O-N-E because Christ has done it all on the cross. And we just need to receive him and what he has accomplished for us. That's a really good description. Which means it's either up to us or it's up to God. The distinction is better understood by comparing a parable that Jesus taught with a similar story that was found in Buddhist literature. Both stories involve sons who get tired of being at home and they abandon their, their home, uh, go to a far-off country, later determine the error of their ways, decide to come back and be reconciled to their family. Okay, you recognize that story. But in the Buddhist story, the wayward son is required to work off the penalty for his past misdeeds, spending years in servitude of shoveling dung. As a matter of fact, the story says he spent 25 years shoveling dung in order to pay for his wayward journeys. But in the ending of Jesus' parable, the prodigal son... It's totally different. The repentant son who comes home willing to serve is met with a welcome and open-armed father who puts a robe on him and sandals on his feet, forgives him, gives him unmerited grace, and then throws a party. Same story. Two different endings. Which one is the most appealing? There are other fundamental differences between Christianity and other religions. Christianity claims one eternal God who created the universe. Hinduism is pantheistic, claiming that everything is God. Islam denies that God had a son or could even have a son or would want a son or that Jesus was God in the flesh or that he died on a cross for our sins. And Buddhism, do you realize this? Buddhism doesn't even believe in a God at all. These beliefs cannot all be true because they contradict each other. And isn't it illogical to think that the God of the universe would tell this group over here one thing and tell this group over here something totally different and tell this group over here a third unique thing and expect it all to work? I mean, what kind of a God does that? Here's, here's the second myth and a challenge. Christ, and it's similar to the first. It's just a different shade of it. Christianity is still just one philosophy among many, and it's no more valid than any other system of belief. Now, folks, don't conclude that just because different religions and their viewpoints are equally protected under the Constitution, that therefore they must be equally true. That's just not the case. Every religion is free to make its claims and is protected by law and should be. So the, the, the question is, is one protected and one not? No, 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 no. Our job is to determine what, which one is true. We could look at a lot of evidence this morning, and we've looked at some over the last few weeks. But for me, the bottom line is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And a couple weeks ago, I said, I would get to this if you'd come today. I'm glad you came back. Here's the thing. 
Here's the thing. An empty tomb cannot be dismissed or ignored. It is the probing question in the history of religion. If, if the tomb was vacated by human means, then Christianity is the greatest hoax of all time. If, however, it was vacated by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, then it is the single most phenomenal act of all of religious history and answers the question. So which is it? Well, let's begin with the irony that we find in, in the story. This is the irony of defeated disciples and faithful foes. Matthew records it in, in chapter 27. It says the next day, so this is, you know, Jesus has been crucified, put in the tomb. Next day, the chief priests and the Pharisees went to Pilate. Sir, they said, we remember that while he was still alive, that deceiver, speaking of Jesus, said, after three days, I will rise again. Now, this is, this is the enemies talking. So give the order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal the body and tell the people that he has been raised from the dead and the last deception will be worse than the first. Take a guard, Pilate answered. Go make the tomb as secure as you know how. I find it utterly amazing that the people who hated Jesus, who wanted him dead, are the very ones that, that remember that he said, in three days I will rise again. And there may be just enough of a hint of fear in that that they want to secure the tomb. They want to keep the disciples from stealing the body and claiming such has happened. And so that's what they do. And you say, well, yeah, what about those disciples? You read anything about the disciples after the crucifixion? They are scared to death. They are in hiding. They have no more motive nor means to go and attack an armed guard securing a tomb. They're cowering in a corner. When the women go to the tomb on Sunday morning, it is not to witness a resurrection. It is to prepare the body of Jesus for a final burial. Does anybody else see the irony in that? The enemies believe him. His disciples don't. That ought to tell you something about the climate that's going on around this very story. Paul in writing in 1 Corinthians says this. Now, now listen to this testimony. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the 12. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Folks, 500 people do not have the same hallucination at the same time. 500 people are more than enough to either convict or acquit in any court of law. And when Paul writes these words, he said most of this 500 is still alive today. In other words, you want an eyewitness account? There's enough of these 500 left that can verify who they saw and when they saw him. Here's another. Archaeologist E.L. Sakinik published his findings in 1945 about discovering first century ossuaries. Now those are, ossuaries are bone boxes. Once the body has decayed, you put the bones in a box and you put it in the tomb. Ossuaries from the first century carved with the words, Jesus save and Jesus help me. Words that would have been meaningless if the resurrection was not a widely accepted fact among first century Jewish culture. Why would you put that on a bone box if you didn't believe in the resurrection? And at this time, John, the apostle, is still alive. 
and could add confirmation to it. All the way back to the first century. Ancient historians writing near the time of the Lord's crucifixion verified that the tomb was empty. So we don't just have a biblical record. We have historical record that the tomb was empty. Now the, the big million dollar question is how did it get empty? What did happen? Did someone steal the body? Well, the enemies wouldn't have had any reason to steal the body. And let's just say they did it for a joke. And the apostles started preaching the resurrection. What would they have done? Why, they would have gone and picked the body wherever they stored him. And they said, ha, laughs on you. Here's the body of Jesus. But nobody ever produced a body. And as I've mentioned, the disciples didn't have any means or, or motivation to do so. But the, the, the greatest the greatest proof to me of the fact that they didn't steal the body is that they preached the message of the resurrection. And with the exception of John, who lived to be an old man, even though he had been exiled to the island of Patmos for his faith, and with the exception of Judas, who took his own life after betraying Jesus, 10 of the original 12 died a martyr's death. Now, folks, if they had stolen the body, they would have known what they were preaching was a lie. And psychologists tell us that men or women will not, will not die for what they know is a lie. Now, people may die for a lie, but they don't know it's a lie. But these guys, if they'd have stolen the body, they'd have known it was a lie. You just don't do that. Maybe Jesus merely fainted, became unconscious. They thought he had died. So they take him down off the cross, put him in a tomb, seal up the tomb, pack him under 75 pounds of spices, and that's what they said they did on that day, and, and, and then sealed the tomb. So here he is three days later after being scourged, crucified, all this kind of stuff, and in a dark, airless tomb, comes back to life, rolls away the stone that the women couldn't roll away, and convinces people he's come back to life. That's, that's pretty hard to believe, but that is one of the theories that is out there. But if that's the case, then when did he die? If that was just a fainting spell, when then did Jesus die? We have no record of any other death, even in history, nothing. Maybe they just went to the wrong tomb. Ah, oh, come on. You mean to tell me that everybody back then forgot where they buried Jesus, even Joseph of Arimathea, whose tomb it was? If you've ever, if you bought grave, graves yet, I know that's a little morbid to ask, but some, sometimes people buy their graves ahead of time. Do you remember where you bought them? What cemetery you bought your graves ahead to get, to get ready for this last adventure of life? Of course you do. There is no way, well, it takes more faith to believe that everybody forgot where they buried Jesus than it does to believe in the power of the resurrection. Now, I have everything I need. I'm not saying that you do. And I'm not saying that what I've just said here is enough for you. Please don't misunderstand me. I'm just telling you why that when you dig and you look and you explore, there is reason to believe that an empty tomb happened because of a resurrected Christ. Okay, here's the third thing. Christians are narrow-minded or snobbish when they say that Jesus is the only way to eternal life and salvation. Are some Christians snobbish? Yeah. Just like some from other religions, some atheists, some agnostics are snobbish. Snobbery has nothing to do with 
what you believe. Snobbery has everything to do with your character. People who are snobbish are going to be that way no matter what they believe. It's, it's a part of their character. I, I'm, I'm, I'm really convinced Christians don't want to be viewed as snobbish, and we certainly don't want to be viewed as narrow-minded. But if we reflect and believe what Jesus claimed, it's going to appear that way. You see, I've got a, I've got a major problem, folks. It's a serious problem. It's called sin. I am a sinner. I have broken God's laws. I continue to break God's laws. I am a sinner. And, and I have two options. I only have two options. First option is this. I somehow have to atone for that sin. I have to pay a penalty for that sin. I have to do something to make God happy enough that he will embrace me once again. Or, or I trust that somebody else has paid the price that I could not pay. And what I have to do is, with grace and faith and, and deep joy, embrace what that payment is. Let me see if I can explain it this way. Our oldest daughter, Emily, developed jaundice shortly after she was born. And now, now, this is our first child, so Elsie and I are a little bit concerned. Doctor said, nothing to worry about. Said, there's a simple problem. We'll just put her under a special light, and that'll take care of it. And it did. It worked. But let's just suppose that when Emily was born and diagnosed with jaundice, and the doctor said, all we need to do is put her under the light, and she'll be okay. I said, whoa, 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 way home. I'm not sure about that, Doc. That sounds way too simple. I think we need to do something a little more heavy duty. I think we ought to scrub her with lava soap in the hottest water that she can stand and then dip, dip her in bleach for good measure to make sure we get rid of that jaundice. Or if that doesn't work, maybe we'll just ignore the whole thing and pretend it's not there because, well, a touch of yellow never hurt anybody in their skin pigment. Or, on the way home from the hospital, I'll just have Elsie hold her out the car window while I hit 45 mile an hour down a straight stretch, and we'll just let the wind blow it all off of her. I'd summarize it like this. You know, Doc, the jaundice diagnosis is your truth. It's not my truth. I sincerely believe I have a better answer. Things will work out. You just watch and see. Now, if the doctor hasn't locked me up by this time... He or she is going to say this emphatically. You will jeopardize your precious daughter's life if you don't listen to me. There is only one way to treat her jaundice. Light. Look at the credentials on my wall. I've studied at the best medical schools. I've helped countless babies like yours. You've got to trust me. Now, would anybody in a setting like that suggest that the doctor was being snobbish or narrow-minded to pursue only one course of action and treatment? Of course not. This terminal illness, this terminal sinfulness that I have, that you have, responds to only one remedy, the light of the world himself. I can try all my life to pay it, and I'll get nowhere. But he, he's made it available to every one of us, every one of us. Let's suppose your hometown has two clubs. 
Only two clubs. The first one admits only those who can earn a membership. And its dues are out of reach for most. The, the required hours of service at the club are, are overwhelming and demanding and grueling. And there's an obstacle course designed to weed out the weak and out of shape. There's only a handful of people who can pay enough, who can serve enough, and who can make the obstacle work to be a club member. The other club operates quite differently. In the other club, some wise, beneficent person has paid the membership for everybody. And so in this club, all you have to do is say, I'd like to be a member. Rich or poor, male or female, young or old, those from both sides of the tracks, whosoever will may be a member of that club. Because you see, the price has already been paid for membership. Let me ask you, out of those two clubs, which one is more snobbish and narrow-minded? I'm telling you, Jesus said, because I've paid the way, everybody can come home. Sounds like the best answer possible. Thank you for watching this message from Sherwood Oaks Christian Church. Did you know you can view any message from the past six years at socc.org messages? You can also view complete worship services from the past month at socc.tv.